Welcome back to QAV and Happy New Year, everyone. I'm recording this on the 2nd of January, 2024. Can you believe it? Uh, it sounds very Donald Trump. Can you believe it? Uh, recording this about 1.30 p.m. on Tuesday afternoon. Market is open. Hasn't closed yet, but at the moment, it's having a good day, despite the AFR's prediction this morning that it was going to slide downwards. Of course, it finished uh, the end of 2023 almost, according to uh, the AFR, at an all-time high. I think the AORD is actually at its all-time high, but the ASX 200 slightly below its all-time high, which is around August 2021. But it, it finished uh, the top of the market for the year. It had a 52-week high at the end of December and has kicked up again to, uh, I think it's now an all record high or very close to its record high. So that's been a big turnaround. You know, if I look at the charts, say over the last year, um, we started 2023 around about 7,131 for the All Lord. Went up, uh, then dropped back down the end of March. It was down back to where it started the year at. Then it was sort of a topsy-turvy year, uh, sort of, Looking good around about July, it was almost back to where it was in February, dropped all the way down to 6,960, sort of around the end of September. Uh, no, so the end of October. And then it uh, had a great couple of months, end of the year, to finish at a nearly an all time high. So, what do we learn from that? I don't know. Market goes up, market goes down. That's basically my takeaway from it. Who knows why the market does what the market does? US market and interest rates here and there and everywhere. And look, it's beyond my uh, abilities to understand why the market does what it does. All I know is that I follow the rules and it tends to work out uh, okay over the long term. If I have a look at the... Uh, QAV dummy portfolio. I've been doing my weekly report this morning. I haven't sent it out because we haven't got a buy list ready yet that'll come out tomorrow. When I did my analysis this morning, the dummy portfolio was up 17.25% per annum. This is uh, for all time versus the SPDR 200 up about 8.5%. So we're doing about yeah two times, about double market. Little bit better than double market over that time. But the good times were really sort of from August, September 2020 through to, you know, June 2021. So it was a good period of almost a year there where we really outperformed the benchmark, what I call the good times. And we're just waiting for the good times to come back round again. The rest of the time, over the last four or so years we've been running the dummy portfolio, we've sort of tracked pretty closely, actually, to the benchmark, um, except in the times when we really peaked and then we fought, fell back from like, I think we were doing four times the benchmark down to double, and then we've basically stayed consistent double benchmark. You look at the last 18 months on the chart and we've pretty much tracked it, but at a double level. 
So we're looking for those good times to come back again. Hopefully, you know, at some point. I don't know if it's a once in a decade phenomena or once every five years, we might see that uh, sort of outperformance, massive outperformance. Looking at Tony's history, his 30-odd year history, it seems to come, I think, on average once every seven or eight years. So I guess we just play for the long term. That's how I guess this thing works. The financial year report, we're doing about 1.4 times better than the SPDR 200. And over the last 30 days, we've underperformed it a little bit, but not by much. And uh, the same is also true with the dummy portfolio that I'm running in Stockopedia over the last 30 days. It's done okay. It's up about 5%, not quite as good as the uh, benchmark, but not far behind it. So uh, that is the report, I guess, for the dummy portfolio over the course of the last year. It had a pretty good year. Let's let's uh, say, you know, it didn't shoot out the lights, but it did okay. Now, uh, one other thing I wanted to mention, the only real news I have, because it was pretty quiet last week, is I added G8 Education Limited back to one of the light portfolios. This is GEM. And you may recall, we bought it back in October. We've talked about this on the show And then um, they had their 2023 Investor Day presentation a couple of days later, and the share market did not react kindly to it. They announced at the time that they were offloading 31 out of 430 childcare centers that weren't performing up to their expectations, and the share price dropped suddenly 10%. And we had to sell them. We had to rule one them. Well, on the 19th of December, they released their trading update. Things are going well. And the share price shot back up 12%. They're now back above what we paid for them in October. So this is one of those instances where rule one didn't work out in our benefit. I mean, I don't know what I invested that money in in October and how that's done. I haven't done that level of analysis. But yes, this is one of those few times when I have gone back and looked to see how Rule 1 played out, only because this was back on our buy list again and, and I had to buy it. But I you know, did that analysis a couple of months ago where I looked at 18 months of light transactions and I analyzed all of our Rule 1s and all of our commodity cells and all of our three-point trendline cells and worked out uh, when we sold them, how much we sold them for and where the prices were when I did the analysis. And as you probably have heard Tony and I talk about, it worked out pretty evenly. Some went up, some went down. You know, basically it was cheap insurance, didn't cost us anything, and we netted out at the end of the day. So um, I don't know why I'm mentioning that, just that it's back. It's one of those ones that I, I think that the, the share market's reaction to it when they um, punished it in October was probably an overreaction, as we thought it was at the time. They were trimming some of the dead wood from their childcare centre portfolio, which was probably a good management thing to do and has turned out well based on their latest uh, trading update. Um, But, you know, it's not for us to say. We just try and play the cards as they are dealt. So, um, that's all I've got, really, in my intro this morning. I'm going to throw to a pre-recorded pulled pork that Tony did before he went on holidays. This is COF. It's one of the REITs 
We had an email from Dave from Newey. He asked us to uh, do a pulled pork on an REIT, and this is the one that Tony chose. Then after that, I'm going to come back and I'm going to chat a little bit about the US Federal Reserve. It's something I've been trying to understand again, what the value to the US economy is of having the world's predominant reserve currency. And um, I'm going to chat a little bit about that, what I've been learning, and I'm going to have a chat with a good friend of mine about it. So that'll be after Tony's pulled pork. Let's cut to that now. I have pulled out what to do a pulled pork on to expand on that. Um, and I'm going to use one of the ones that uh, that Dave has asked for. Um, I'm going to use COF, Centuria Office Rate. And the only reason I picked that out of, out of the three, well, first of all, Cromwell was a, a falling knife. It's it's a negative sentiment. So I thought that wasn't worth doing. Um, Eleonora has a higher QAV score of 0.07 than, than Centuria, which has uh, 0.04, but um, it's a low ADT stock. So I thought I'd do one which was meaningful. So Centuria Office REIT has just under a billion dollars traded every day. It's 949 million, so it's large enough to be um, of interest to everyone listening. Um, however, it's not above its buy price, even though sentiment is increasing at the moment. So eventually that gap will will narrow because the buy, buy line, because sentiment has been falling, the buy price gets cheaper each month and the pr- share price of this REIT has been increasing. So it will cross, I think, some stage in the future, uh, in the near future anyway, all things being equal. Uh, the, the, the REIT itself contains $2.2 billion of office space across 23 buildings around Australia. Uh, most of those, um, it does have some CBD assets, but they make a virtue of the fact that they are on the fringes. So if you think of places like Chatswood in Sydney or the Valley in Brisbane, Portitude Valley in Brisbane, that's the kind of office buildings they have. Uh, so they they are calling out that the work from home trend hasn't affected it as bad as some of the REITs that just have exposure to CBD office buildings. They do have 97.1% occupancy, which is up from last year of 94%. So there is a trend coming out of COVID to return back towards full occupancy. Um, A couple of other things that are interesting about this one. Something you should take into account with um, REITs is what's called the WALE, the whale, which is the weighted average lease expiry. So the longer that is or the higher the number, the better, because it means you've you've locked in long-term tenants. For this company, it's 4.2 years on average. So that's kind of in the middle. It's it's not short. It's not overly long. Um, but 4.2 is not bad. And the company is 36.7% geared. So again, a modest gearing rate, not overly high there as well. Um, I went through their latest uh, projections and their latest releases, and it, they're claiming that the return to work is gaining momentum. Um, I guess they would because it suits them, but um, it's it's probably true. As we hear, I mean, I read articles every week about this company or that company telling people they won't get their bonuses if they don't come back to the office or, or they've got to be back in the office for at least a certain number of days a week. So there is some trend back towards that, which will help these REITs. Uh, the other thing that helps this company is that because they're in those kind of fringe CBD buildings, they tend to be a bit newer. Um, so their average age for a building is 17 years, which is reasonably low again for these kinds of 
REITs, and that also makes them more attractive because people like renting from in your buildings, um, especially if they're not in the CBD. If you have two buildings and one's old and one's new, you'll opt for the new one. Um, the call out though on property valuation um, has to be made, and the property valuation went down 4.2% this year, which is a $98 million hit to, to profit. Even though it's treated as an abnormal, it really is um, a change um, that the accounting standards uh, put through the PNL. So that's one of the reasons why um, these REITs are trading below their NTAs. People don't think 4.2% is a, enough of a devaluation to office building property. Um, but again, eventually that will sort itself out. And for the moment, you are buying it um, at well less than NTA. So if I can NTA on this company is a dollar ninety six, and the share price I did my analysis at was a dollar thirty six. So big difference there. Um, do I think that the NTA value of these office buildings will fall by thirty percent? No. So we are picking up stock at cheap, and as Dave said, that's a contrarian investment and a value investment. So. Um, that's good. Going into the QAV numbers, the uh, share price is less than the consensus target. So that's a, a tick for us. It's roundabout IV2, but above IV1. So IV2 is $1.35, but um, the share price is $1.36 and a half. So doesn't get a score for that. Earnings per share after abnormals is, is less than 15, or well, it's negative 15 cents. So it's not going to score. Um, uh, well for us on that basis, and it's down 32% from the year uh, prior. Forecast EPS is is forecast to grow at 19%, and forecast EPS is $0.14 cents per share. But I haven't been able to tell whether that's before or after abnormals, so I'm not sure how much stock to place in that. But it does get, get a score at this stage, so I'll take it on face value. It gets a score on the growth over PE metric because the PE, well, it's... Um, it's uh, Negative, I think, in this case. No, low, anyway, because they're using the, um, the pre-abnormal PE. Uh, so it's, it beats our threshold of 1.5 for growth over PE, which is 1.64 in this case. But I do have a question mark on that, whether it's pre or after abnormal. So in other words, if there are more write-downs next year, that, that growth for PE won't hold. Um, conversely, if we decide that people are going back to the offices and they're worth more, then there'll be a... Um, a valuation increase, which will support profit next year. Uh, Stock Doctor Health and Trend is strong and steady, so we score it for that. The dividend yield on this company, which is a focus for investors, is 9.56% unfranked. So that's getting up to the top of the sort of market again, and um, it's quite high. Uh, and so I think just that fact alone, we'll see some support for the share price going forward. Um, NTA, as I said, dollar ninety six, which reflects skepticism in valuations. Net equity per share is the same, so we're not seeing any goodwill there, uh, which is good. Uh, prop calf is twelve point five times, which is why we're not seeing on, seeing it on the buy list, and we, uh, there's no owner founder, so we can't um, score it for that. So all in all, summing all those up, quality is seven out of fourteen or fifty percent, and the QAV score is 0. 0.03, which is um, too low for our our buy list, but. Anybody who wants to invest in this sector, um, you know, can either buy something when it comes on the buy list like URW or could look at buying things when they're below the net tangible assets and, and getting them at, at discounted prices, which I think is a valid strategy, particularly if you're after a good yield um, for, to live on. 9.56% is pretty good um, in the market.
Thanks, Tony. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, Cameron back in the editing booth here, obviously. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, I've, I've been trying to understand the role of the US um, reserve currency and how that benefits the US economy. I've been reading this book. It's about 20 years old now, but a book called Super Imperialism by a guy called uh, Michael Hudson. He's a US economist. It's a book that's been in my to-read list for a couple of years, actually, and I just managed to get around to it over the break. And I, um, you know, I was I was not really following it that well. It, it assumed a certain level of a priori knowledge, and then I slapped myself upside the head and thought I should just ask my good friend Maverick, aka ChatGPT, to help me understand it. And so I had a conversation with Maverick last night on this, which I found very helpful. And I thought I might sort of just repeat that process today and uh, let you guys follow along. I don't know uh, how well you all understand the value that the US gets out of having the reserve currency. Uh, Maybe everyone else in the world understands it and it's just me who's the dummy. But in case there's a couple of people out there who don't really understand it either, I found it sort of fascinating. I think Tony and I have talked about it before. I'm not sure if it's on the show or not. I've talked about it on some of my other podcasts over the years, but it's one of those things, it's a bit like Einstein's theory of special relativity. Um, Every now and again, I need to go back and do a refresher on it because I understand it when I study it and then a year or two goes past and I've forgotten what how it works so uh this is one of those things so let me uh boot up a good old maverick here i want to ask you about the importance of the u.s dollar being the global reserve currency and how the u.s economy benefits from that can you give me a high level explanation to start with sure the u.s dollar's status as the global reserve currency is a big deal Essentially, it means that many countries hold large amounts of U.S. dollars in reserve and use it for international trade. Um, This status brings several benefits to the U.S. economy. First off, there's demand for the dollar. Since it's widely used for international transactions, countries need to hold it in reserve. This demand helps keep the dollar's value relatively stable. Then there's the borrowing advantage. The U.S. can borrow money at lower interest rates because there's always a market for its debt. Think of it like having a good credit score. Lenders know other countries desire the dollar, so they're more willing to lend to the U.S. at favorable rates. Lastly, there's the power aspect. Having the dominant currency gives the U.S. significant leverage in international finance and politics. It can influence global economic policies, and enforce economic sanctions more effectively. So in a nutshell, the U.S. gets stability, cheaper borrowing, and more global influence. But remember, there's always another side to the coin, like potential impacts on trade deficits and the risks of relying too much on this status. So let's drill down on this idea that the U.S. dollar being the reserve currency enables it to borrow money more cheaply. Tell me again how that works. All right, let's delve into how the U.S. dollar being the reserve currency leads to cheaper borrowing. It's all about trust and demand. Since the dollar is the global reserve currency, it's widely used and trusted in international trade. This trust creates a high demand for the dollar. Now, imagine you're selling a product that everyone wants. You can set favorable terms, right? 
That's what happens with the U.S. and its currency. Countries and investors want to hold U.S. dollars, so they also want to invest in U.S. assets, particularly treasury bonds. These bonds are essentially loans to the U.S. government. High demand for these bonds means the U.S. can offer them at lower interest rates. Why? Because there's no need to entice investors with high rates when there's already strong demand. In a nutshell, the reserve status creates a cycle. High demand for the dollar, high demand for U.S. bonds, U.S. can borrow cheaply. It's a significant advantage for the U.S. economy, allowing more affordable government borrowing and influencing global economic trends. So I've been reading this book, Super Imperialism, by an economist called Michael Hudson, and he is making the case that the U.S. is able to manage very high levels of foreign debt as a result of this this advantage that it gets from having the global reserve currency and its economic prosperity since the early 1970s when Nixon took it off the gold standard is in large part funded by foreign reserve banks. Would you agree? Michael Hudson's super imperialism offers an intriguing perspective on the U.S. economy and its relation to the global reserve currency status. Hudson argues that the U.S. benefits significantly from this position, especially in managing its foreign debt. Let's break this down. Post-1971, when Nixon removed the gold standard, the U.S. dollar didn't collapse as some feared. Instead, it gained a new kind of power. Countries needed more dollars for their reserves since they couldn't just rely on gold. This shift increased demand for U.S. dollars and, by extension, U.S. Treasury bonds. Now, here's the critical part. By needing to hold U.S. dollars, foreign banks end up financing U.S. deficits. They buy U.S. Treasury bonds, effectively lending money to the U.S. government. This process allows the U.S. to run high deficits and debts without the same consequences a typical economy might face, like inflation or currency devaluation. Hudson's viewpoint suggests that the U.S. leverages this unique position to sustain its economic prosperity, partly funded by foreign reserves. This perspective is quite compelling and is supported by the dynamics of global finance post-1970s. Uh, it does raise questions about the balance of economic power and the long-term implications of such a system. So, to your question, Hudson's argument holds water in explaining how the U.S. manages high levels of foreign debt and props up its economic prosperity. Um, it's a complex and somewhat contentious topic, but it's clear the reserve currency status plays a significant role in the U.S.'s economic strategies and global influence. And as I understand it, what this has effectively meant in the last 50 years is that the U.S. never really needs to pay off any of its foreign debts. It just refinances them basically every time a bond matures by borrowing more money cheaply and getting foreign governments essentially to pay off their debt for them. Is that somewhat correct? You've got the gist of it. The U.S. debt situation is a bit like a juggler with an ever-increasing number of balls in the air. Since the U.S. dollar is the world's primary reserve currency, it does give the U.S. unique leverage. They can issue more debt in their own currency to pay off maturing bonds. Foreign governments often buy these bonds, essentially funding the U.S. debt. However, it's not all smooth sailing. This system hinges on the continued confidence in the U.S. economy and the dollar's stability. If that confidence wavers, the whole setup could face challenges. Also, constantly increasing debt raises questions about sustainability in the long term. 
Um, what's your take on this? Do you see it as a sustainable strategy or is it a house of cards waiting to collapse? I have no idea. I'm not an economist. I'm trying to get a better understanding of it. That's why I'm talking to you. Um, Michael Hudson makes the argument that the US used this model of fiat currency and getting foreign banks to fund it in order to uh, you know, finance their Cold War activities after the Vietnam War, which he said drove them off the gold standard in the first place because it cost them so much money. And, you know, basically for the last 50 years with their global wars and their expansionist policies, it's all being funded largely by foreign governments. Is that uh, something you'd agree with? Michael Hudson's perspective on U.S. fiscal policies, particularly in relation to the Cold War and its aftermath, is indeed thought-provoking. Um, his argument that the shift from the gold standard to fiat currency was driven by the financial strains of the Vietnam War, enabling the U.S. to finance its Cold War activities through debt, is a significant point. Hudson is right in observing that the U.S. has managed to fund a lot of its military and expansionist policies through debt, much of which is held by foreign entities. This is partly due to the dollar status as the world's reserve currency, which makes U.S. bonds a sought-after investment globally. Countries buy U.S. Treasury securities not only as an investment, but also to hold reserves in a stable and easily tradable form. This system does indeed allow the U.S. to sustain high levels of debt and to fund extensive military operations and foreign policies that would be financially untenable for a country without such a dominant currency. However, it's crucial to consider other factors, like the intricate dynamics of international finance, the role of U.S. economic policies in global economics, and the interdependencies of global economies. So, in a way, yes, I'd agree with Hudson's view to a certain extent. Uh, it paints a picture of how global finance and geopolitical strategies are intertwined, especially in the context of the U.S. But it's also a complex scenario with many moving parts. Uh, what are your thoughts on how this financial maneuvering has influenced global politics? I don't really have any views, but I want to read a quote from Michael Hudson's book and get your thoughts on it. He writes, If the United States had followed the creditor-oriented rules to which European governments had adhered after World Wars One and Two, it would have sacrificed its world position. Its gold would have flowed out and Americans would have been obliged to sell off their international investments to pay for military activities abroad. This was what U.S. officials had demanded of their allies in World Wars I and II, but the United States was unwilling to abide by such rules itself. Unlike earlier nations in a similar position, it continued to spend abroad and at home as well without regard for the balance of payments consequences. Michael Hudson's quote highlights a significant shift in how the United States managed its international financial obligations and its approach to global economic dominance. Uh, his point is that historically, nations in debt, especially after wars, had to follow strict creditor rules. They would lose their gold reserves and have to sell off international assets to cover their expenses. This was the case for European nations after both world wars. However, post-World War II, especially during the Vietnam War era, the U.S. deviated from this norm. Instead of cutting back on spending to balance its payments, the U.S. continued to spend heavily both domestically and abroad. This was possible because of its departure from the gold standard and the adoption of the fiat currency system, which essentially allowed it to print more money. Hudson is pointing out the double standard here. 
the U.S. demanded financial prudence from others, but did not apply the same rules to itself. This approach enabled the U.S. to maintain and even expand its global influence without the immediate financial repercussions that typically follow such heavy expenditure. This strategy has had far-reaching consequences for global economics and politics. It contributed to the U.S.'s sustained military and economic presence worldwide, but also led to growing national debt and complex international financial relationships. Hudson's analysis is crucial in understanding the unique position the U.S. holds in the global financial system and its long-term implications. Do you think this approach has been beneficial for the U.S. in the long run, or could it lead to potential problems? Yeah, don't ask me any more questions. I'm asking you the questions. That's I'm the interviewer. You're being interviewed. He writes, thanks to the $50 billion cumulative U.S. payments deficit, between April 1968 and March 1973, foreign central banks found themselves obliged to buy all of the $50 billion increase in U.S. federal debt during this period. In effect, the United States was financing its domestic budget deficit by running an international payments deficit. Um, Hudson's observation about the U.S. financing its domestic budget deficit through an international payments deficit is a critical point in understanding the country's financial maneuvers during that period. From April 1968 to March 1973, the U.S. faced significant economic challenges partly due to the Vietnam War's costs. The situation he describes involves a kind of financial alchemy. By running a payments deficit, the U.S. effectively compelled foreign central banks to purchase U.S. federal debt. This process was facilitated by the global reliance on the U.S. dollar, which remained the dominant reserve currency even after the gold standard was abandoned. This period marked a significant shift in global finance. The U.S. could sustain its spending, both domestically and militarily abroad, without the immediate need to balance its books. Foreign nations, needing to hold dollars as part of their reserves, had little choice but to buy U.S. debt. This strategy, while ingenious in the short term, raised questions about the long-term sustainability of such financial practices. It highlights the unique position the U.S. held in the global economy and how it leveraged this position to its advantage. The implications of this approach are far-reaching, affecting not just the U.S., but the global financial system at large. It's a prime example of how economic strategies are deeply intertwined with geopolitical maneuvering. So you've highlighted a few times that this strategy comes with risks, but has it ever caught up with the United States since they started this in the early 70s, or have they been getting away with it for 50 years? Uh, since the early 70s, the United States has largely been able to maintain its strategy of financing deficits through debt without facing a catastrophic financial crisis directly attributed to this practice. This is due to a combination of factors. One, dollar dominance. The U.S. dollar's status as the world's primary reserve currency plays a crucial role. It creates a constant demand for dollars and U.S. Treasury bonds, providing the U.S. with a unique advantage in managing its debts. Two, economic resilience. The U.S. economy is one of the largest and most dynamic in the world. This economic strength underpins global confidence in the dollar and the U.S. government's ability to meet its obligations. Three, global financial system. The structure of the global financial system with its reliance on the dollar supports this approach. 
Many countries hold their reserves in dollars and are thus invested in the stability of the U.S. financial system. However, it's not a risk-free strategy. Challenges include debt sustainability. The growing U.S. national debt raises questions about long-term sustainability. While there's no immediate crisis, the escalating debt could pose challenges, especially if there's a loss of confidence in the U.S. economy or its fiscal management. Global economic changes, shifts in the global economy, like the rise of other currencies or changes in the geopolitical landscape, could challenge the dollar's dominance. Inflation and interest rates. Managing large debts becomes more challenging if inflation rises or if interest rates increase significantly, as the cost of servicing the debt could become unsustainable. So far, the U.S. has managed these risks effectively, but it's a balancing act. The situation requires careful management to avoid future crises that could arise from over-reliance on debt financing and the complexities of global financial interdependencies. But can't they just borrow more money every time they need to service debt? Although I assume there has to be some kind of a limit to how much U.S. debt foreign banks can buy. Um, absolutely. The U.S. has been borrowing more money to service its existing debt, a process often described as rolling over the debt. Um, this strategy works primarily because of the dollar's status as the world's reserve currency and the global financial system's reliance on U.S. Treasury securities as a safe, liquid investment. However, you're right to assume there are limits. One, market appetite. There has to be sufficient demand for U.S. Treasury bonds. While demand has been robust, it's not inexhaustible. If investors, including foreign governments, um, lose confidence in the U.S.'s ability to manage its debt, they might reduce their purchases or stop buying altogether. Two, debt to GDP ratio. Economists often look at a country's debt to GDP ratio as a measure of its economic health. While there's no fixed danger level, a very high ratio can raise concerns about sustainability and might deter investors. Three, interest rates. If the U.S. has to offer higher interest rates to attract buyers for its bonds, the cost of servicing the debt increases. This can create a cycle where the U.S. has to borrow more just to cover the interest, exacerbating the debt problem. Four, inflation concerns. Excessive borrowing can lead to inflation. Uh, if lenders start worrying about inflation eroding the value of their bond holdings, they might demand higher interest rates or look for other investments. So while the U.S. currently benefits from a system that allows it to keep borrowing, it's not without its risks and limitations. The key is maintaining a delicate balance to prevent these risks from materializing into a financial crisis. So what's the counter-argument to Michael Hudson's thesis that the United States has used foreign governments to finance its own hegemony in the last 50 years. Are there solid counter-arguments that you can bring uh, make me aware of? Counter-arguments to Michael Hudson's thesis typically focus on the following points. One, mutual benefit. One argument is that the U.S. Treasury market offers a safe, reliable investment for foreign governments. It's not just about the U.S. Uh, leveraging others to fund its debt. It's also about providing a stable investment opportunity that benefits those countries' reserve management. Two, global economic stability. The U.S. dollar's role in global finance contributes to worldwide economic stability. By providing a reserve currency, the U.S. supports international trade and financial markets. Critics of Hudson's view might argue that this stability outweighs the negatives of U.S. debt practices. Number three, economic interdependence. 
the global economy is highly interdependent. The argument here is that U.S. economic strength is beneficial for global economic health. When the U.S. economy performs well, it often leads to positive effects worldwide. Four, no viable alternative. Another point is the lack of a viable alternative to the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. The euro, yuan, or other currencies have their own challenges and haven't been able to match the dollar's ubiquity and stability. Five, market forces. Some critics might argue that the U.S. debt situation is governed by market forces. Uh, investors voluntarily choose to buy U.S. debt because they deem it a good investment, not because they are coerced or manipulated into doing so. Six, domestic policy focus. Finally, another counterargument is that U.S. fiscal policy is often more driven by domestic concerns like unemployment, inflation, and growth than by a deliberate strategy to exploit foreign governments. These counterarguments offer a different perspective, suggesting that the situation is more about mutual interests and the intricacies of global finance rather than a, a one-sided exploitation. They emphasize the complexity and interconnectivity of international economic relations. But it sounds to me like those aren't really counterarguments to the model. They're saying that the model is, as Hudson describes it, but these are just maybe finessing the nuance of it around whether or not it's uh, a manipulative strategy being run by the US or it's just an opportunistic strategy that they came up with. So maybe both things can be true. It can be beneficial to many countries to use the US dollar as the reserve currency. And at the same time, the US can exploit that to its own advantage your interpretation sounds quite spot on it's not necessarily an either or situation hudson's thesis and the counter arguments can coexist highlighting different aspects of the same complex system the u.s using its position to finance its own interests as hudson describes can indeed occur simultaneously with the mutual benefits of a global reserve currency system this duality is a fundamental characteristic of international economics and politics Actions often have multiple motivations and consequences, some intended, others not. Uh, the U.S. might have adopted certain strategies that appear opportunistic or self-serving, but these actions also play a role in the broader context of global economic stability and interdependence. The situation encapsulates both the advantages and potential drawbacks of the U.S. dollar's dominance. Uh, this nuanced understanding is crucial for a comprehensive analysis of global financial systems and their geopolitical implications. It's about seeing the bigger picture, where various elements interact in a dynamic and sometimes contradictory manner. So, in summary, then, it seems to me that the United States' economic dominance in the last 100 years or so is really down to two factors – Predominantly, I mean, if we accept the fact that they, you know, did encourage a lot of entrepreneurialism in the 19th century, 18th and 19th century, etc., and they had, you know, quite a productive economy by the end of the 19th century, in the early 20th century, they managed to avoid the major impacts of World Wars One and Two because they didn't happen on their soil. Most of the major um, other economic powers around the world were destroyed, uh, their economies were destroyed in World War One and World War Two. The US sort of coasted through them relatively untouched. Then, um, towards the end of World War Two, with the Bretton Woods Conference, 
it was decided that the US dollar would become the Federal Reserve, and then the US were able to leverage that predominantly in the last 50 years to basically get free money to expand their economic and military power around the world, particularly with the fall of the Soviet Union in the early 90s. The US were able to really double down on locking down the the global economy uh, to their advantage, largely because they were using this free money. Is that a relatively accurate summation? Um, your summation presents a broad yet insightful view of the factors contributing to the United States' economic dominance over the last century. Key elements include, one, early economic growth. The U.S.'s entrepreneurial spirit and productivity in the 18th and 19th centuries laid a foundation for economic strength. Two, geopolitical advantage. Post-World Wars, the major European powers were devastated by World Wars I and II, whereas the U.S. emerged relatively unscathed. This disparity allowed the U.S. to advance its economic position while others were rebuilding. Three, Bretton Woods and dollar dominance. The post-World War II Bretton Woods Conference established the U.S. dollar as the central currency in global finance, significantly boosting U.S. economic influence. Four, leveraging the dollar. In the last 50 years, the U.S. has indeed leveraged its currency's position, using it to finance both domestic and international agendas, including military and economic expansion. Five, post-Cold War dynamics. With the Soviet Union's collapse, the U.S. faced fewer challenges to its global economic strategies, consolidating its position as the central player in the global economy. Your summary accurately captures the confluence of historical, economic, and geopolitical factors that have shaped U.S. dominance. It's a complex interplay of internal strategies and external circumstances, with the U.S.'s ability to adapt and leverage these factors playing a crucial role in its rise to economic preeminence. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, ChatGPT. What do you have planned for the rest of the day? It was great being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. For the rest of the day, I'll be right here ready to dive into more conversations, explore intriguing topics, or assist with any questions that come my way. If you have more topics to discuss or questions later on, feel free to drop by. Have a fantastic day ahead. Do you have any New Year's resolutions? Creating New Year's resolutions isn't something I do, but I'm all about helping others with theirs. Whether it's learning something new, tackling challenges, or exploring creative ideas, I'm here to assist. Do you have any resolutions for this year or any goals you're working towards? Lots, but let's talk about that off air because I don't think anyone cares. Thanks, GPT. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, You know, as I said, I was reading this book and trying to get my head around it and then just realized I just need to have a conversation with GPT. Now, of course, we all know that GPT isn't perfect and it hallucinates and if anything sounds fishy to you, You should double-check it, fact-check it, ask it to fact-check it, ask it for sources, ask it for references, the same you would do in any conversation with anyone. And if anything it said as part of that conversation you think it got wrong or you disagree with, please let me know, and maybe I can talk about it with Tony next week when I think he'll be back. Anyway, that's the show for this week. Have a great week and happy share market. Let's hope 2024 is another one of the good times years. If you like the QAV podcast, help us out and help your friends out. Help Australia out by telling somebody about it. You can shoot somebody an email with a link to our latest newsletter. 
say, hey, you should check this thing out. I think you'd really like it. Or write us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. It only takes 30 seconds. You can find the links in our newsletter or our blog posts every week uh, and follow the instructions for how to do that. Or write a review or make a post on Facebook or Twitter or X, whatever it's called now, on Threads, on, I don't know, whatever it is, whatever the social media channel of your preference is. Just help spread the word. You'll do us a favour and you'll help your friends and help Australia learn how to take control of their investing as well. The QAV podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129217182. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions. Thank you.